of Two Sober Chicks, and Julie's not joining me today, so this is going to be a shot glass of recovery as I continue my discussion on the Harry Tebow papers. Uh, Dr. Harry Tebow was a psychiatrist, uh, and he was one of the uh, board of trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous and one of our original benefactors for our organization. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about the Harry Tebow papers um, well, for myself, it definitely helped me in understanding the ego, uh, self, um, how that is active today, even though I'm not drinking, if I am not being mindful of these things, how it can creep back up on me and my mind can start talking to me and telling me bullshit. Um, and so I want a deeper understanding. So I read these papers. Another thing that it helped me with was the whole um, AA is not a religious program, but it's a spiritual program because I really got upset when they would mention the word God or some sort of a prayer would be introduced. Um, and then I would be like, well, you said it wasn't a religious program, but we're doing all these things. And the reason the Harry Tebow papers are important to me is because it helped identify the reasons why um, ego needs to be smashed. Ego needs to be smashed in order for me to accept that there is a power greater and it's not me. And that helps me surrender. It helps me accept. It helps me give up control over the uncontrollable, which is life and everyone else. I can't control everyone else. And these papers were essential in helping me understand that. If you want to join me in furthering your discovery, um, one of the groups that I attend and uh, I consider it my online home group is Primetime Toronto, Friday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's 5 p.m. PST, Pacific Standard Time. The Zoom ID is 850-0789-8342 and the password is Primetime. If you want to follow along with these Harry Tebow study papers, you can find them on primetimeisnow.com. Uh, look for the Harry Tebow link, and you can have all of these papers readily available for you to read at your leisure. For those of you who are audio learners and you like to listen along, I'm going to give you that opportunity today as I read the next paper, which is uh, called Excerpt from Therapeutic Mechanisms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And away we go. Harry Tebow published his first paper on alcoholism in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Association in 1944. In this excerpt, Dr. Tebow refers to his experience with Marty Mann, one of his patients from five years before. Something had taken place under my very nose, which could not be doubted and which could not be explained away as mere coincidence. I found myself facing the question, what had happened? My answer is that the patient had had a religious or spiritual experience. The answer, however, did not prove particularly enlightening, and it was not until much later that I began to appreciate the real meaning of the answer. Before attempting to explain how further understanding of the significance of the religious factor or spiritual factor developed, it is necessary to discuss the character structure which had dissolved. Despite most reports to the contrary, there is a growing recognition of certain common qualities which are regularly present in alcoholics, excepting those who have a frank underlying mental condition. Characteristic of the so-called typical alcoholic is a narcissistic, egocentric core, dominated by feelings of omnipotence, intent on maintaining at all costs its integrity inner integrity. 
While these characteristics are found in other maladjustments, they appear in relatively pure culture in alcoholic after alcoholic. In a careful study of a series of cases, Silman recently reported that he felt he could discern the outlines of a common character structure among problem drinkers, and that the best terms he could find for the group of qualities noted was defiant individuality and grandiosity. I'm going to interrupt the paper right here and say you'll often hear it referred to in the terms of the rooms. Um, I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. That defiant individuality, that terminal uniqueness, which tells me that I'm different and this program cannot work for me. That's what keeps me separate. That's what keeps me away from acceptance, surrender, and success in this program is the disease of my mind. It is my thinking. At once thinking that life owes me more, but at the same time telling me that I'm somehow inferior and I don't deserve it and I'll never get it. And this is why I find, you know, a study of disease um, and the mind and ego and self so fascinating and so helpful <laughs> to me as an alcoholic. The squeaking in the background is my dog Mabel, who is, you know, unlike me, uh, content with her life. <laughs> and she doesn't need to study and work hard at being able to accept life on life's terms. There's a toy, she plays with it. There's food, she eats it. There's water, she drinks it. You know, she is fully in acceptance of life on life's terms. When I grow up, I want to be my dog. Um, I'll continue. Uh, in a careful study of a series of cases, Silman recently reported that he felt he could discern the outlines of a common character structure among problem drinkers, and that the best terms he could find for the group of qualities noted was defiant individuality and grandiosity. Uh, Harry Tebow goes on in his paper to say, in my opinion, those words were accurately chosen. Inwardly, the alcoholic brooks no control from man or God. He, the alcoholic, is and must be master of his destiny. He will fight to the end to preserve that position. And I'm going to pause here and just say, I think that's one of the things that stands in the way of our sobriety is that inside our brain, our sick alcoholic brain, we are fighting to be the master of our own destiny. And this is why we're obstinate. This is why we're defiant. And we can't follow a few simple instructions because we're always arguing and we're trying to find out um, how we can not succeed at the program, in my opinion. I'll continue with the article. Uh, Dr. Harry Tebow goes on to write, Granting then the more or less constant presence of these character traits, it is easy to see how the person possessing them has difficulty in accepting God and religion. Religion, by its demand that the individual acknowledge the presence of a God, challenges the very nature of the alcoholic. But on the other hand, and this point is basic to my paper, if the alcoholic can truly accept the presence of a power greater than himself, he, by that very step, modifies, at least temporarily, and possibly permanently, his deepest inner structure. And when he does so without resentment or struggle, then he is no longer typically alcoholic. So he's talking about how we are smashing our ego and accepting and then developing humility. 
And then he goes on. And the strange thing is that if the alcoholic can sustain that inner feeling of acceptance, he can and will remain sober for the rest of his life. To his friends and family, he has gotten religion. To psychiatrists, he has gotten a form of self-hypnosis, or what you will. Regardless of what has occurred inside the alcoholic, he can now stay dry. Such is the alcoholic's anonymous contention, and I believe it is based on facts. I'm going to continue on with another paper. Uh, this is presented also on primetimeisnow.com, and you can find it under Anonymity, the Ego Reducer. This talk was presented at the 1955 AA International Convention in St. Louis, Missouri. A version of this talk also appears in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, a book that you can get, uh, I believe, through uh, AA.org. And it's found on page 245 in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. Uh, the opening is more of a his introduction. It's a speech written by Harry Thibault, who was presenting at the AA International Convention. Um, so I won't read that part, just to say that he mentions that he joined AA by proxy, meaning that he does not identify as an alcoholic, but he supports the organization um, because he believed in what was happening here. He saw firsthand a change in his own patients when they followed the 12 steps that were suggested to them. So that was a, com a combination of psychiatry and spirituality working hand in hand. And he uh, supported us till his death. Um, so he joined AA by proxy in 1939 when a patient had become a member of the New York Alcoholics Anonymous group. And now I'm going to pick up halfway down the paper where it says, Later I attended other meetings more orthodox in character. As I did, I developed a conviction that the group had hit upon a method that solved the problem of excessive drinking. In a sense, it was an answer to my prayers. After years of butting my head against the problem of treating the alcoholic, one could begin to hope. Keep in mind as I read this, this is written by a psychiatrist who has been struggling to help alcoholics get sober with little success. In, the, in his address, he continues with his speech. In retrospect, my first two or three years of contact with AA were the most exciting in my whole professional life. AA was then in its miracle phase. Everything that happened seemed strange, wonderful. Hopeless drunks were being lifted out of the gutter. Individuals who had sought every known means of help without success were responding to this new approach. To be close to any such group, even by proxy, was electrifying. In addition, professionally, a whole new avenue of problems of alcohol had opened up. Somewhere in the AA experience was the key to sobriety. There was the first authentic clue after many years of fruitless efforts. Needless to say, the possibilities ahead were most intriguing. Perhaps I could learn how AA worked and thus could learn something about how people stopped drinking, all of which meant that I shared in the general excitement of those days. I could see some daylight ahead. My future in this regard was now clear. I would try to discover what made AA tick. In this quest for understanding, I would have never gotten beyond first base if it had not been for Bill and many of the early members. The study of the 12 steps helped a little, but of far greater importance was the many insights already possessed by Bill and the others 
into the process through which AA brought about its results. I heard of the need to hit bottom, of the necessity for accepting a higher power, of the indispensability of humility. Ideas that had never crossed my professional horizon and certainly had never influenced my non-professional thinking or attitudes. Revolutionary as they were, these ideas nevertheless made sense, and I found myself embarked on a tour of discovery. I began to recognize more clearly what hitting bottom really implied. I began to do what I could to induce the experience in others, always wondering what was happening inside the individual as he went through the crisis of hitting bottom. Finally, fortune smiled upon me again, this time in the form of another patient. For some period, she had been under my new brand of psychotherapy, designed to promote hitting bottom. For reasons completely unknown, she experienced a mild but typical conversion, which brought her into a positive state of mind. Led by her newly found spiritual elements, weak though they were, she started attending various churches in town. One Monday morning, she entered my office, her eyes ablaze, and at once commenced talking. I know what happened to me. I heard it in church yesterday. I surrendered. With that word, surrender, she handed me my first real awareness of what happens during the period of hitting bottom. The individual is fighting the admission of being licked, of admitting that he is powerless. If and when he surrendered, he quit fighting. He could admit he was licked and could accept that he was powerless and needed help. If he did not surrender, a thousand crises could hit him and nothing would happen. The need to induce surrender became the new therapeutic goal. The miracle of AA was now a little clearer. For reasons still obscure, the program and the fellowship of AA could induce a surrender, which could in turn lead to a period of no drinking. As might be expected, I too had a thrill of my own. I was getting in on what was happening, always an enjoyable experience. Still questing eagerly, I shifted my therapeutic attack. The job now was to induce surrender. When I tried to cause that, I ran into a whole nest of resistances to that idea. Totally new territory to be explored. As I continued my tour, it became ever more apparent that in everyone's psyche, there existed an unconquerable ego that bitterly opposed any thought of defeat. Until that ego was somehow reduced or rendered ineffective, or as we say in AA, smashed, no likelihood of surrender could be anticipated. The shift in emphasis from hitting bottom to surrender to ego reduction all occurred during the first five or six years after my initial contact with AA. I well remember the first AA meeting to which I spoke on the subject of ego reduction. AA, still very much in its infancy, was celebrating the third or fourth anniversary of one of the groups. The speaker immediately preceding me told in detail of the efforts of his local group, which consisted of two men, to get him to dry up and become its third member. After several months of vain effort on their part and repeated nosedives on his, the speaker went on to say, Finally, I got cut down to size and have been sober ever since. His sobriety was a matter of some two or three years then. When my turn came to speak, I used his phrase cut down to size as a text around which to weave my remarks. Before long, out of the corner of my eye, I was conscious of a disconcerting stare. 
It was coming from the previous speaker. Looking a little more directly, I could see his eyes fixed on me in open-eyed wonder. It was perfectly clear that he was utterly amazed that he had said anything that made sense to a psychiatrist. The look of incredulity never left his face for my entire talk. The incident had one value in my eyes. It showed that two people, one approaching the matter clinically and the other relying on his own intuitive report of what had happened to him, both came up with the exact same observation, the need for ego reduction. And I'm going to pause there for a second and just jump in. So I, I think this is of extreme importance, what he's just said here. I mean, the whole address is important. But what he's saying is that this is a highlight for him because as a scientist, as a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a man of science and medical knowledge, he is relating to the person who's the alcoholic, the sufferer. And that person is relying on their own intuition, their own idea of what has happened to them. But they've come to the same conclusion. And this is why we always talk about how one alcoholic can reach another alcoholic, oftentimes where doctors and psychologists and family members cannot, because an alcoholic speaks the same language to the alcoholic. We understand, we talk about the feelings that we have, the demoralization, the shame, the regret, the remorse, the guilt, um, feeling hopeless. And then we talk about that spiritual change that takes place. And so two different approaches, but yet both of them are actually speaking the same language. I think it's quite profound. I'll continue with his speech. Uh, Dr. Thibault continues to write, During the past decade, my own endeavors have centered primarily upon this problem of ego reduction. How far I have been able to explore that territory is not at all certain. I have, however, made a little progress. I love his humility. I shall try first to acquaint you with some of my findings, and second, to relate them to the AA scene as I see it. Uh, as I have already stated, the fact that hitting bottom could produce a surrender that cut the ego to size was evident fairly soon. In time, two additional facts manifested themselves. The first was that a reduced ego has marvelous recuperative powers. The second was that surrender is an essential uh, is essentially disciplinary function and experience. The first is merely repeating a fact known to you all. It is common knowledge that a return of the full-fledged ego can happen at any time. Years of sobriety are no insurance against its resurgence. No AA, regardless of his veteran status, can ever relax his guard against the encroachment of a reviving ego. And I'll pause. You know, this is a great answer when people say, well, you've been sober for 10 years. Why do you still go to AA? Or you've been sober for 30 years. Why do you still go to AA? It's all about our ego. You know, if we lapse, if we um, stop practicing these principles in all our affairs, that ego is going to know. An alarm is going to be tripped in my brain and it's going to go whoop, whoop, whoop. Her defenses are down. <laughs> She's weak. She's not manning. I man all battleships. You know, it's going to take over. It's going to sense that. So I love that about this article. I'll continue. Uh, recently, one AA writing to another reported he was suffering. He feared from hallow, oh, halotosis, an obvious reference to the smugness and self-complacency that so easily can creep into the individual with years of sobriety behind him. 
it talks about this in the big book too again i'm digressing about the elder statesman versus the bleeding deacon the bleeding deacon is the one that thinks that because he's been around so long he knows everything and he has all the answers does that not smack of ego to you it does to me um, i have to remain egoless i have to remind myself that i know some things but i don't know everything and i need to keep coming to keep learning and to keep growing and i need to remain um reliant upon a power greater than myself and a power greater than you and a power greater than my fellow aas a power greater than me and all of you is my higher power is a god of my understanding back to the article um the assumption that one has all the answers or the contrary that one needs to know no answers and just follow aa are two indicators of trouble in both open-mindedness is notably absent perhaps as the commonest manifestation of the return of ego is witnessed in the individual who falls from his pink cloud a state of mind familiar to you all this blissful pink cloud state is a logical aftermath of surrender the ego which is full of striving just quits and the individual senses peace and quiet within the result is an enormous feeling of release and the person flies right up to his pink cloud and thinks he has found heaven on earth everyone knows he is doomed to fall but it is perhaps not equally clear that it is the ego slowly making its comeback that forces the descent from the pink cloud into the arena of life where with the help of aa he can learn how to become a sober person and not an angel I like that reminder, you know. I am an imperfect, fallible human being. I am not an angel. I am not godlike. I am not a saint. Um, practice these principles in all our affairs, principles before personalities. Um, just, yeah, just another humbling reminder that the work has to continue and that I will never reach perfection, and that's okay. Uh, progress is important. As long as I continue to progress, never resting on my laurels, that for me, I think, is has to remain paramount in the forefront of my mind. It's not about perfection. It's not about arriving at a destination. It is the journey that is important. It is the constant change and restructuring of my mental and emotional state that allows me to continue to maintain a peaceful uh, sobriety experience on life. You know, I'm no longer dependent upon other people's behavior or things turning out the way I think they should if I am continuing to practice these principles and, and um, practice humility and smash my ego because it is going to come up again and again and again. And that's just me, Lisa, this alcoholic, speaking for me. Back to the article. Uh, Dr. Tebow says, I could go on with many more examples familiar to you all of the danger of ever assuming that the ego is dead and buried. Its capacity for rebirth is utterly astounding and must never be forgotten. My second finding that surrender is a disciplinary experience requires explanation. In recent articles, I have shown that the ego basically must be forging continuously ahead. It operates on the unconscious assumption that it, that it the ego, can never be stopped. It takes for granted its right to go ahead and in this respect has no expectation of being stopped and no capacity to adjust to that eventuality. Stopping says, in effect, no, you cannot continue. 
which is the essence of disciplinary control. The individual who cannot take a stopping is fundamentally an undisciplined person. The function of surrender in AA is now clear. It produces that stopping by causing individuals to say, I quit, I give up my headstrong ways, I've learned my lesson. Very often for the first time in that individual's adult life, he has surrendered and truly feels, thy will, not mine, be done. When that is true, we have become, in fact, obedient servants of God. The spiritual life at that point is a reality. We have become members of the human race. I have now presented the two points I wish to make. Namely, first, the ego is revivable. And second, surrender is a disciplinary experience. I next wish to assess their significance for AA as I see it. Primarily, the two points say quite simply, AA can never just be a miracle. The simple act of surrender can produce sobriety by its stopping effect upon the ego. Unfortunately, that ego will return unless the individual learns to accept a disciplined way of life, which means the tendency for ego comeback is permanently checked. This is not new to AA members. They have learned that a single surrender is not enough. Oh, I'm going to stop right there. I think that's why, you know, we talk about um, taking the steps every day. You know, when I wake up, I admit step one. I take step one. I admit again today for the next 24 hours, I am powerless over alcohol if I put it in my body. Um, I am powerless over other people. I am powerless over the state of the world. I can't control other people. And I'm also not dependent. My sobriety is not dependent upon other people or the circumstances of the world. It is dependent upon me surrendering and turning my will and my life over to something greater. Back to the article. Again, those are Lisa's thoughts from what I've learned in experience of this program. Under the wise leadership of the Founding Fathers, the need for continued endeavor to maintain that miracle has been steadily stressed. The 12 steps urge repeated inventory, not just one, and the 12th step itself is a routine reminder that one must work at preserving sobriety. Moreover, it is referred to as 12th step work, which is exactly what it is. By that time, the miracle is for the other fellow. The 12 traditions are also part of the non-miracle aspect of AA. They represent, as Bill has said, the meanings of the lessons of experience. They serve as guides for the inexperienced, or the newcomers as we call them today. In reality, they check the ways of the innocent and unwary. They bring the individual down to earth and present him with the facts of reality. In their own fashion, the traditions say, pay heed to the teachings of experience or you will court disaster. It is with reason that we talk of the sober voice of experience. My stress on the non-miracle elements of AA has a purpose. When I first made my acquaintance with AA, I rode the pink cloud with most of its members. I too went through a period of disillusionment, and fortunately for me, I came out with a faith far stronger than anything a pink cloud could supply. Mind you, I am not selling miracles short. They do loosen the individual up. I now know, however, the truth of the biblical saying, By their works you shall know them. Only through hard toil and labor can lasting results be obtained. 
As a consequence of the need for work to supplement any miracle, my interest in the non-miracle features has grown. I can accept more truly the necessity of organization, of structure, which curb as well as guide. I believe there must be meetings like this one to provide a sense of belonging to a big working organization, of which each individual is but a part. And I believe that any group or individual who fails to participate in the enterprises of the organization is rendering himself and his group a disservice by not submitting to the disciplinary values inherent in those activities. He may keep the ego free of entanglements, but he is also keeping himself unstopped. His chances of remaining sober are not of a high order. He is really going it alone and is headed for another miracle that may not come off the next time. In closing, let me reaffirm my proxy membership in AA. I have been in on its glowing start, and I've shared in its growing pains. And now I have reached the state of deep conviction in the soundness of the AA process, including its miracle aspect. I have tried to convey to you some of my observations on the nature of that process. I hope they will help in making the AA experience not just a miracle, but a way of life that is filled with eternal values. AA has, I can assure you, done just that for me. And that was Dr. Harry Tebow addressing the AA uh, International Conference of 1955. Again, I thank you for taking this journey with me as we delve a little deeper into the study of Dr. Harry Tebow and his uh, papers, which talk a lot about ego and self and uh, how we can smash that ego to obtain surrender. Thanks for joining me. I'm Lisa, uh, one of the members of Two Sober Chicks. And this has been a shot glass of recovery. Mm-hmm.